From Variety, celebrating more than 118 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. The idea of, like, you know, you can't say things, or it's, like, it's, it, it's a very hackneyed position. Uh, you know, a lot of people who whine about being canceled, no one could, you know, give a shit about. Uh, you know, it's an easy disposition. It's, it's, a, it's a hack point of view. You know, we're all just trying to find our way of saying the same three things. You know, they, if you want to go up there and, you know, and hammer liberals or trans culture or LGBTQ, like, it's just... It, it's just hack that there's a type of comic mind out there and there's a lot of them who think like it's there they have to go up and address trans people it's like you don't asked about the state of comedy mark Marin doesn't have time for comedians who think they're being silenced but really are just hacks i'm michael schneider and on this episode of the variety award circuit podcast we talk to mark Marin about his deeply personal hbo special mark Marin from bleak to dark in which he explores culture, politics, grief, and more, and in particular, the death of his partner, Lynn Shelton. It's all next on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Mark Marin's recent HBO stand-up special, From Bleak to Dark, yes, touches on subjects that might be considered, well, bleak and dark. But of course, it's much more than that. Sure, Marin opens the special by pointing out that society seems to be on a collision course with disaster, and there's little that can be done about it. But as the comedian, actor, and podcaster tells Variety's Award Circuit podcast, he's just being a realist. But From Bleak to Dark takes an even more personal turn as the comedian addresses the death of filmmaker Lynn Shelton, whom he had been together with during the early days of COVID. But I, I do remember the first you know, joke that came to me about Lynn's passing that made me feel better. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll share it with you. The setup is, is heavy. And if, you're, uh, if, you're, you're, if the fact that you're going to die is triggering to you, you might want to leave for a few minutes. <laughs> All right. So... This is a day that a lot of people have had. It's when you have a loved one in the hospital who's fighting for their life. It's a horrible day. Don't wish it on anybody. It's the worst day of your life. You're on the phone with doctors, with friends, with family members, trying to hold on to hope, trying to get information, trying to figure out a way to, to, to stay positive. You know, and at some point, it turns, and it's not going to work out the way that you want it to work out. And about 5.30, 6.30 in the afternoon... You know, the doctor says to me, he says, look, uh, you can come down here and see her if you want. This is peak COVID. No one's in hospitals. Uh, she's probably going to be gone. We're taking her off the machines, but you can come down here and see her. And I was like, what? Do, what do you mean? Do, do people even do that? And he's like, I don't know what people do. I'm just telling you I can make that happen. Like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I got you know, to call like 12 people to figure out what to do. So I start calling people. And I'm like, dude, the doctor just said that I can go see her and she's going to be dead. And they're like, that's fucked up. And I'm like, that's not helpful. <laughs> so I went through about nine of those. <laughs> and finally, I called Michaela Watkins, who's a friend of both of ours, great actress. And I go, Michaela, the doctor says I can come see her, but she's going to be dead. And Michaela just goes, oh, you have to do that. And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> Sounds terrible. She goes, you would regret not doing that. And I thought, like, you don't really know me, apparently, because... <laughs> It sounds like the worst thing I could ever do in my life. And she said, well, it's never going to happen again, and it might be good to do it because there's going to be closure there, and, and you don't really know how it will feel, and it, it's an important thing to do. It's an opportunity. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> fuck. So I call the doctor back, and I'm like, all right, I'm in. I'm coming down. And he's like, all right, well, i got to give you a heads up. We can't really clean up because the coroner has to sign off on her. I'm like... You're not really selling this. I gotta be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle it, man. He's like, you, you can handle it. Just come down here and we'll take care of you. And I'm like, oh, all right. So now it's 1230 at night. I'm driving down to the hospital and I'm in shock. My girlfriend died. You know, I'm, I'm out of body experience. I'm shattered. I'm totally traumatized. And I'm driving alone to this hospital in the middle of the night. And I get to the hospital and there's no one in it. Just a security guard. I'm like, I'm here. To, he, he says, yeah, I know. And he takes me up to intensive care. Now, thank God for nurses. They're real heroes, and they're at this shit. Yeah. Every day. 
Every day, nurses are dealing with this stuff. And I'm, I'm saying that to preface the fact that the nurses up in the ICU were a little chipper. I don't know why. But <laughs> maybe it was helpful. I don't know. But I, I got up there and I'm like, hi. And they're like, hi. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm here to see Lynn Shelton. They're like, we well, you know, she's, she's just in there. And there's no rooms in an ICU, not at this one. It was dark and there were just curtains. And they said, she's in there. You know, you go in there and, you know, take as much time as you want. And I'm like, okay. So I walk in there and Lynn's there and she's gone. And I was able to, you know, touch her forehead and, you know, tell her I loved her and cry, you know, for a few minutes. And I, I stayed with her for, for a good five minutes. And, and, and I was like, you know, I felt like, okay, uh, I'm going to go, you know. And I, I, I said goodbye. And I'm walking out. And I'm thinking, selfie? No, right? <laughs> Mark Merritt visited Variety in April to talk about a wide range of issues, including his special and how he addressed the loss of Shelton. He also takes on comedians who hide behind being, quote, anti-woke, shares his concerns over how Netflix has impacted comedy, gives his take on Record Store Day, talks about his guest role on season two of Reservation Dogs, as well as some of his upcoming projects and much, much more. We began by talking about, well, what else but living in Glendale. I've been there. I don't know. What's it been? Maybe over, it's got to be over five years now. When did I go over there? I, I should know these things. I was thinking about it out loud on my podcast. I need a timeline. I need <laughs> to create a timeline of my life so I can remember things. But uh, but yeah, I was in Highland Park and then I went to Glendale and I love it. Yeah. It's like, there's something about the location seems very close to everything you need other than the ocean, but I don't need the ocean. Uh, and you don't feel it. Like I, you're, I'm, Everything's there, but in my neighborhood, I don't feel like it's crowded or anything. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And you have you're su- such close access still to Eagle Rock, Highland Park, Atwater Village, sure. all the highways, yep. the valley. Yeah, yeah. But yet, it's not really a part of the valley. It's so. not. No, I know. It's its own township, its own cops. Yeah, its own fire department. I go up to that mountain. I'm five minutes from that Brown Library. Just go up there and hike yeah. three times a week. Yeah, I, I don't know. I love it. Yeah. Got the Americana at brand. Rarely go, but sometimes you have to. Movies, Apple Store. Yeah. Might need to. Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Occasionally. We're also at the epicenter, and it was just record store day. I yeah. don't know if you celebrate, if you observe record store day. I tend not day. to. No? No. No. Am- amateur hour? I don't know if it's amateur hour. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge reissue guy, you know, and sometimes, usually there's stuff left over. There, they, yeah, I don't know how many times you have to buy certain records, but... Uh, Sometimes there's good jazz stuff that comes out that's never been out before, but I don't get into the into the muck of it. Yeah, there's a couple of labels that send me stuff for free or just send me stuff because they uh, like my work. A couple of jazz labels, so I usually end up getting a few things without going. Yeah, yeah. Rhino right. just sent me the uh, Velvet Underground Loaded box, and it's one of those things. Like I get those things, these boxes of reissues with all kinds of extra stuff, but I rarely listen to them or sit and read the stuff. I don't I don't even listen to the additional material. I have the thing, but I'll end up going to the original copy I have anyways. Yeah. 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 They're just sort of nice, pretty packaged boxes. Yeah, well, some of them have cool stuff, but you know, I don't know where people find the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 true. But what what uh, you know, sort of led me to think about that is that we're kind of at the epicenter in Glendale of all these great independent record stores that have popped up in recent years. Like what? Like Record Safari, have you been over in on on? It's on Los Feliz Boulevard uh, in Atwater Village. It's right after. Oh yeah, the, been there. The five. I think I have been there. Yeah, and I've been like I usually go to Gimme Gimme over in Highland Park, and sometimes I go to Permanent Records. Uh, and there's a there was a place in Burbank I went once or twice, but I I'm kind of limited. Yeah. Uh, to those two outlets, mostly Dan's place, mostly Gimme Gimme. Yeah, no, Gimme Gimme's great. I was just there actually on Saturday. A Royal Records in Highland Park. That guy's all right, well. but his records are dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've you know that guy's a nice guy. He means well, but like I've bought sort of noisy, dirty records there, and he's not, he's not you know cutting the prices at all. Like Dan will, Dan over at Gimme Gimme will clean every record. He knows what the condition is when he puts it out. Uh, and he's very meticulous about that. Whereas I've bought records over at Arroyo, and they're just, you know, they're yeah. noisy and 
bad. Yeah. Yeah, well, Record Safari, I think, right now is is sort of the 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 place. And that's on. It's on Glendale. It's on uh, Los Feliz Boulevard. You Los know where Feliz the Boulevard. the Costco is. It's yeah. sort of like around there. Oh, really? And and so they didn't actually carry any Record Store Day product, but they uh, cut uh, all their used was thirty percent off. All their new was twenty percent off. That's pretty good. So, how, but how much? What's the uh, what's the ratio? How much new to used? Uh, it's probably seventy-five used, twenty-five oh, new. Yeah, I'm fine. I have not much interest in new records. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'll go over there. I, I I haven't been there. I didn't realize that's where it is. Yeah, I, I've never been there. No, it's great. Great. This has been record it's, talk. Yeah, it's a bigger store. It's a bigger store it's than a pretty, Dan's store. It's yeah. It's bigger than Dan's. It's bigger than Gimme Gimme. Huh. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it's a good size and. Uh, dude, I have so many records now. Like they're just coming out of. They're they're all over the place and. You know, you have to balance the compulsion with your ability to listen. Like, I just got a big haul from Dan with all kinds of stuff in it. It's got to be 30 records. And, uh, you know, I have to sit and do it. And there's, I, I've got a bunch of stuff on the floor right now that I have not listened to. And you've been playing a lot more, too. Guitar? So that, yeah. So I that have been, yeah. Probably takes, takes some of that time that you would be listening. I don't know where the time goes, man. You know, I'm living alone over there in a big house, and it just seems like I don't go out of the house in terms of I stay in the neighborhood and I work from home but like my days are pretty full you know without playing guitar or listening to records you know I interview people on a lot of days there seems to be house stuff to do I like to cook but yeah I I don't practice guitar as much as I'd like to but I do more than I think most people do yeah yeah and then I well I now we've got a I've got a gig we got to play out in May me and the fellas at Largo so, you know, we've put together a set list. I choose pretty basic stuff so we don't have to rehearse too hard and too much because uh, we don't really act as a band outside of getting ready for these gigs we do at Largo. But, um, but yeah, so I've got to get my head into that. Yeah. I was yeah. going to ask you how you split your time these days because obviously you've got the podcast, but then you've got the, the, the different sort of uh, spots that I'm sure you're doing on different shows. And then I don't know how much touring you're doing right now. but Right now it's... You know, you're. I'm in that kind of post special time, where you you're out on the road with. I was out there with 90 minutes plus. You know that becomes an hour and ten or hour five for the special over the course of a year and a half, two years. Um, and then you kind of got to start from scratch. You know what was left over was not that usable uh, because a lot of it was COVID related. But some of it was, you know, usable and a good place to sort of start building new stuff. So you're kind of wondering where it comes from and, and if it's going to come and, you know, what's the through line. And all that stuff is unanswerable until you start working out. So I, I just been working out. I really didn't take any break um, after the special dropped. I just started going to the comedy store again and, and trying, trying to pick up some threads of, of uh, uh, of the old stuff and, and finding a new direction, which I don't know I, I have, but I, I think I've got about half hour, 40 minutes of stuff right now that is fun for me, you know, because I, I, over the years I've gained a little more confidence and, and a, a little more ability to have uh, more, a little lighter, a little less, you know, hard on myself. So I'm, I'm kind of enjoying just fooling around with these jokes that have that are coming up yeah um and and toying with them and making them work and adding to them just you, you know uh, uh not too heavy about it you know yeah well you know the the how you open this most recent special is is almost evergreen at this point sure. sort of everything's rotten and the world is burning get better ever again well i mean there's there's a truth to it and i think that you know the first 15 or 20 minutes of that special of from bleak to dark Sort of addresses a lot of things in in a fairly broad way because I wanted it to have some longevity, uh, and the things I talk about aren't going anywhere. The negative things I talk about, but also framing the special like that, like you know, I don't want to be negative, but I don't think anything's ever going to get better ever again, is uh, is an acceptance that actually, if you have if you have acceptance around that, uh, it gives you a, a bit of freedom of mind. Yeah, you know, there's a sort of a zero fuckness to it, uh, because there's only sort of so many things you can do that you think will have an impact or actually do have an impact. But you, you do have to be honest with yourself about what you think is going on and, and try to to live with it. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, we all have this anxiety now of exactly what you said, but in a weird way, hearing you say that made me feel a little better. Yeah, because I think we run around and personalize it. I, I think that because of the nature of culture and society that we're all sort of living in whatever bubble we determine, you know, and, and there, I'm not talking about bigger bubbles, like your personal bubble is what it is. I notice that more and more that, you know, I don't know why my news feed gives me what it gives me. I don't have it set on panic, but, uh, you know, uh, we all have our own little worlds and, and we don't spend a lot of time talking to other people or, or not necessarily commiserating, but just, you know, finding a place to, to be with other people and say like, are we in trouble? I think we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So I think that my comedy serves that purpose for a certain type of person. Do you find in, in when you uh, you know have guests on your show and you bring people into your house, has, has their mood changed in the past couple of years? How is it now compared to, say, at the start of the pandemic or the, the, the height of the, the Trump years? Well, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I, I'm trying to date. You know, I was doing stand-up um, when Trump got elected, you know, right, 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 almost immediately, and that became end times fun that became the last special that was a netflix special and that stuff's very specific and, and very apocalyptic and you know it's heavy man these last two specials end times fun and from bleak to dark i think are really the the best stuff i've ever done in terms of addressing culture politics personal things you know the things that are foreboding but i think during the pandemic once we figured out how to create the same type of intimacy and, and candid nature that we got when people would come over because I, I required them to come over. I, I never did anything on the phone and Zoom wasn't really a thing before the pandemic. So it was always one-on-one -on -one in person. So once we figured out how to do the Zooms, they, it, it, I think we got interviews that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise, actually. And I think some of them are quite good because you have these stars uh, or celebrities or pe or people who don't usually um, do podcasts that were just going a little nuts in their houses and it was easier for them to do it and they weren't insulated as much. You know, they didn't have an entourage around them. They didn't have, you know, people necessarily. Like in that that interview I did with Jodie Foster is probably one of the best I've ever done and it's a unique thing because she doesn't talk to anybody and she was just there in her sweatpants and she talked about things she really hadn't ever talked about, I think. And that happened a few times with guests in the pandemic because they're, they're just home. You know, yeah. they're not in the middle of a junket. They're just sitting there wanting to talk to people. So that was what made that interesting. And there was a certain kind of uh, relief to it all to just, I think, for a lot of people just to talk to people. But now people are coming back. And I noticed with comedy, too, people are engaged and they're excited. I don't know if it's a if it's an excitement coming from a good place, but it feels like the audiences in the comedy club over at the store, they're definitely game, you know, but it doesn't feel like, you know, we're just out for a night of entertainment. I think that there is a, a, a sort of frequency of panic uh, that that's not going to really go away. And I, and I think there's a need for relief a, a bit mm -hmm. and a need for some sort of, um, you know, way of seeing it that will provide something and I feel that in the comedy clubs. And in terms of people coming to the house again, it's been great. You know, I, I think people are happy to be, you know, talking in person. Uh, that's, that's the vibe I get. That, you know, everyone's been pretty excited. I talked to uh, uh, Rachel Weiss yesterday. I was a little too uh, excited. <laughs> Do you find they're, very, they're, they're more excited than they used to be to talk to you as well, now that they know so much about you and, and probably have some questions? Of them, some of them don't know anything. You know, some of them, like, uh, you know, who was it that came over the other day who wasn't clear if, uh, you know, is like, is this the place? Like, who didn't really know? Like, who just got into a car? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was part of the things that they had planned for the person. I, I wish I remember. I got to remember who it was. I've done a lot of interviews. But they really didn't. They, they Oh, I remember. It was, it was Titus Burgess. That was interesting because Titus Burgess, you know, I was in respect with him. Mm -hmm. Um, and he just showed up at my door, and I opened it, and he's like, is this the place? And she's, and then he's, he had a, a second, he's like, oh! You know, I'm like, so he had no idea. 
you know what but, he was getting into. Yeah. Or, or, or who it was. But that, that's, that's going to be a great one. I haven't released that. That got pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. Very personal. Yeah. And then there are the people who probably show up and say, so, how are the coyotes? Or... Sure, sometimes. You know, there are some listeners. I find that a lot of times, not unlike me, I guess, that, um, you know, people, some people will, will listen in preparation. You know, mm. there's some people aren't regular listeners. It's, it's, there are some people that are regular listeners. I've had many guests on who listen regularly, but some like to just sort of get hip to what's happening. Uh-huh. And I'll always know those people when they mention like the two most recent ones. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh yeah, I listened to it. You know, okay. So you did your homework. To, <laughs> yeah, to well, that's good. They, they did their homework. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm, one of my most embarrassing moments of the past couple of years uh, is, is, and you would never remember this, but I don't know why I did this, mm. but I randomly was standing outside the Pasadena Arclight and saw you walking by, and I suddenly felt this urge. This was like in 2019, probably, um, or maybe earlier. I don't remember. Mm. But I suddenly felt this urge to be that weird stranger who yeah. says, Mark, congrats on Obama. Oh, Yeah. Why would I do that? That was that's still like I I still think about how embarrassing that was like for me to just randomly say that to you. Not not introduce myself. Not just like yeah. Congrats on Obama. Yeah, yeah, that was good. I don't think that's embarrassing. <laughs> it was you know it's worthy of congrats. It might have been closer to when I did that. Yeah, right. Which I forget which year that was. Now was it was this, uh it was the beginning of his last term. Oh yeah, so that would have been earlier. Yeah, like twenty fifteen, fourteen, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 No, I mean that was uh you know nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um. So let's talk a little bit about your your acting career at this point. Um. So it was. Uh, I've been a big fan of Res Dogs for for the you know for the two seasons, and it was nice to see you just show up and and play this sort of means well kind of yeah kind of a weird self involved uh, cranky uh, halfway house yeah uh, it's like he's doing good work for but kids he's sort of still well that's the way those guys are oddly you, yeah you, you know people in the recovery racket. Especially people that, you know, have re- gone through recovery and they've got a few years under their belt and they don't know what to do with their lives, so they become counselors. So, you know, there's a, a, a kind of a rough wisdom to them. And, you know, this guy runs a, a halfway house for teenagers that, you know, is, I guess in his mind, recovery-oriented. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like any of the kids really care about the recovery part, but it you know they do have meetings once a day or whatever. Yeah, and, and a lot of these kids are just sort of stuck in the system and shouldn't yeah, even yeah. be there. Yeah. And it's and and it's red tape and and it's sure just... you know and it, you know but recovery is part of a lot of those situations. You know, I just think it was funny that there was this sort of half-ass AA meeting. That was it was very funny, and you know Sterling was into it, and uh, the cat who directed it. Uh, what's his name, Bobby? Oh, oh, what is his name? I feel bad, but he was great. It was it was a real honor to sort of be part of that thing, you know, because I I became friendly with Sterling, and he had he he had done me sh- my show, and I'd moderated a thing with him, and you know, I told him I said like, what about how, why can't I get a well, I want a part, and it feels like they didn't that part was there, but it wasn't really written for me. It was I think the tone of that one because they usually are sort of taking a uh, doing a take on a movie and i think that was sort of the angle of that one was initially sort of full metal jacket thing mm-hmm. you know like the, i was the drill sergeant yeah but like it, you know there there was no way that i was going to be that guy so i just sort of had to make it my own you know um yeah and i think it, it worked because it sort of adds to the just sort of the uh, not absurdity of the situation but just the surrealness yeah. of the situation yeah no i thought it was great yeah and it was just uh, exciting to go out to tulsa it was a good weekend out there i was out there coincidentally at the same time of the grand opening of the bob dylan center so while i was shooting res dogs you know i interviewed the guy from the bob dylan center and i got to see uh patty smith and elvis costello and mavis staples and go to the cane ballroom and- that's have that moment where you're like, I could live in Tulsa. It goes away that moment. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was kind of amazing to be on a set that, you know, was really on every level um, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a special show. Totally. So, so it was nice to see you there. And Thanks. then, and you've been sort of like doing more dramatic roles yeah. uh, to Leslie. What's, uh, so, yeah. so talk about sort of what you're looking for these days. What's, what's uh, inspiring you? What, what are you looking to do? 
Well, you know, I I don't like to be out of town too long. Um, and I'd like to challenge myself a bit. I just took a part in this Melissa McCarthy Christmas movie. It was just a recurring cameo, kind of a goofy role, just because it got me to New York. You know, maybe enough bread to, you know, cover my union health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I got to be hang out with her for three days. So, so and it was fun because it, there was the part wasn't much on the page, but the director was a fan, Sam Boyd, and um, you know, uh, it was like it was fun, and I it, I just took the opportunity because it's like I'm going to pop up in this thing every you know every twenty minutes or so because I play a doorman. So let's see if we can do something with it. You know, just. Yeah, it was it was challenging in a way just to be funny, uh, you know, because I could. So we'll see how that pans out. But in terms of doing other things, there's there's other stuff. I, I was recently I'm re- I just got attached myself to a project that could be great, uh, a kind of dark comedy movie uh, written by um, uh, Rob Burnett. Mm. Uh, who I've known for years he used to be at, at Letterman. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Nikki Weinstock's uh, in producing. So we'll see if they get the money to make the thing. But that would be really something because it would be like a lot of me. It would be my movie if they choose to use me. Like I don't, I don't hang any hope on anything <laughs> in this business. You know, like because for me it's like I, uh, you know, like okay, well let's see what happens. And I totally expect nothing to ever happen. And I and I'm optioning my buddy Sam Lipsight's book. To maybe, well, I mean, the plan is to to make a movie. So that's on the table. I'd say the two things I'm excited about in terms of acting and, and, and movies in general is the possibility of making a movie out of my friend Sam Lipsight's book, uh, No One Left to Come Looking for You, and to do this, um, and hopefully to do this uh, in memoriam movie, which is Burnett's movie. What about uh, series? Are you are you looking to? Yeah, I mean, I w- I'm open to it. You know, again, if it's uh, you know here or Canada, and it's, <laughs> it's not you know months and months away from home, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm game. I'm doing. I'm in one episode of this uh, horror series coming out soon. Uh, uh, Dolores Roach, um, which was a, sort of a take on the Sweeney Todd thing. Uh, I'm the first victim. I don't know if that's a spoiler. Maybe it is, but. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm open to to doing something if it's great and I want to work with the people. I th- I'm in an, a good position in that I don't really have to do it. You know, I'm at a weird point in my career and a weird point in my life where you know the podcast and the comedy. You know, I'm okay. You know, in terms of security and whatnot. So it really comes down to whether or not I really want to do it and if it'll be um, if it'll, it'll give me an experience, make me better, or or just be fun. Uh, and that's a, a good place to be. Well, I want to get back to the the, the most recent special real yeah. quick because we would be remiss not to talk about how you addressed the passing of Lynn. Yeah, and and sort of what went into that. Yeah, and and also um, filming that. Yeah, uh, that moment and deciding like how that was going to fit in the special and and in the the. That ultimately, what you wanted to put out there for the larger world. Yeah, well, you know, because of you know, she passed away, you know, quickly and tragically and, and, and unexpectedly, you know, a few months into COVID, and you know, I was living with that. You know, she had just moved down here and gotten her own place, and was just sort of finalizing a divorce, and like you know, it was a whole new chapter beginning for her and for us and it was just between you know covid and we, she was mostly staying at my house and and uh, we were kind of locked down together and you never expect anything you know you just it's it was just terrible and and the process and, and living with it and having to deal with it the practicalities of all of it uh, given that no one was mobile and i didn't really know her family it was it was it was traumatic and leveling on on many levels. So, and there was really nowhere to go with it. You, you know, I I started doing Instagram lives and and talking about it, you know, publicly and, and 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 because I didn't know where else to go. I mean, I had a lot of my brother came out and you know the community was very supportive and we did a sort of Zoom Shiva type of thing with friends and and people were in touch. I mean, that was 
that was you know happening but it was it was an awkward thing and and horrible because I didn't really know her family I mean the 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 depth of the shock and and sadness is is was was profound so I mean I didn't know what else to do with it really until when I started talking about it on stage it was sort of a necessity mm-hmm. and I and I I think I I have always processed things uh, on stage I I don't know if that's a great decision you know it, it you know the comics that I respect and admire have done that I think you know in my mind primarily prior I would think mm-hmm. would be the example um so as soon as we could start doing work you know I started talking and that's how I start developing so I do a residency at uh like dynasty typewriter and you know and just start talking and it was not funny at first and sometimes I would cry and I would sometimes not figure out where to go with the feelings but I was fairly committed you know not unlike when I did the podcast following her her death you know that like I didn't really know what else to do and I also believed that whatever I was going through was a common human experience, you know, one of the worst ones, but no one gets out of life not experiencing loss. So I, I thought to go public with that, in that state, certainly that quickly, I didn't have to, you know, my producer was like, you know, we don't have to ever do the podcast again if you don't want to. And I'm like, well, I think we should honor what we do. And and you know this is where I'm at, and and that's I'll put myself out there, and so there was an element of service to it, um, and and I think I'm I think I'm I'm honest about that. I think I'm being honest with myself about that. I mean it does it was not I don't feel like it was self serving to put myself out there in that vulnerable a place, and I certainly did not want to be seen as the victim in in the situation because I think there was a, two things going on. I thought, well, I have to share this emotional state, but also I don't want to be looked at as a, a sympathetic character. I mean, she's the one who died, mm-hmm. you, you know, and and, the, and 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 we have to live with this. There, so, what I was going to say, there must also be that surreal nature of knowing that a lot of your audience because they do feel so connected to you are sort of expecting it and, and sort of, yeah, oddly though, in this situation, I think a lot of people were like, you know, do whatever you have to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they were expecting it. I I don't know that when, you know, you watch that special, uh, that you're expecting that, you know, because it's one of those things that is it private? Is there a way to, to explore that, that pain in, in, in a fairly, Honest and deep way, you, you know, that's funny. I mean, it took a long time to sort of work that stuff, you know, to a place where, you know, I want to be respectful of her. I try, I try to be respectful of her family in a way, but it, it was my experience. I mean, if I have any sort of, um, I don't have any regrets, but I was any apprehensions in, in light of the special is I don't know how it was received by her people, really. I've heard from some of her friends, but I haven't heard from her family. Um, so I was very careful to be respectful and to be personal and to and to sort of deal with the I, I what I think are the general experience of losing somebody. Yeah. And but the process of it moving towards the special was, you know, how do I get this, this stuff working consistently? And, and, and how do I, you know, uh, get a handle on the emotions, which just happened over time? Because what you always have when you're talking about that, or what my experience was, is that the sadness will always be there. So, you know, there's nothing you're talking about, you know, the tragic death of somebody prematurely, um, who you loved. So the sadness is always going to be there. How do you balance that? And how do you not? And how do you balance it in a way where you're not going too far to where it, it, it's um, dismissive or, or 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 too broad? Like the joke I do at the beginning of that section, which I'd only done one other time. There's a couple beats in that special that had never happened before hmm. that were great. I like having that room or that I feel that comfortable to do that. But that beat where where I say, uh, you know, is you know. Um, the day she died was a terrible, terrible day for me, and I'm, I'm sure for her as well. You know, it's a little callous, and it's a little—it's almost like a, a classically structured 
you know, Jewish joke beat. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I had not done it before. But it as a transition, it it though it, it sounds a little, you know, uh, what is it, snarky, maybe snarky or, you know, a little sarcastic. But it is a good bridge for the audience to realize, you know, that I've got a handle on this. Yeah. And it was just a one-liner. And then the, the deeper stuff comes after that. But I think there's a, it's a nice sort of like, it gives them a, 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 a yeah. kind of a palate cleanser, you know, after the cultural stuff. Yeah. It makes it okay right. to, to laugh. I think so. I think so. And that, and that really just happened with uh, the day of the show. That's amazing because that's such a pivotal, I, I still remember that joke specifically because that's such a huge joke. Right. That's like opens it up for right. us to say, oh, it's okay to talk about this right. and laugh. Right. And it's just that, that came to me like the day before. Like I'd just done it like twice maybe. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And I've been working this stuff for a year and a half. And then the other stuff, like some other things started to reveal themselves. It was always kind of really working those stories and those bits and how to present that, you know, that kind of like show-stopping, you know, moment, the build-up to that that bit, you know, when I go to, to, to spend time with her uh, after she's passed. You know, all of that stuff had to be framed properly and had to come from the right place because it's so easily devastatingly sad you know what i'm talking about is devastatingly sad so how do you kind of how do you make that Mm -hmm. funny and poignant and and okay to process i mean that was the challenge of it that was the risk of it but i didn't see any choice i had to do it how were those early audiences at, say, Dynasty Typewriter when you were first sort of working through it? And like you mentioned, sometimes— Well, they were there. They knew me. I mean, that 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 crew was—you know, those were people that— some of them were coming every week. I was like the home team. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they were like—I told them I'm workshopping this stuff. And I, sometimes I do two hours, you know, of talking because that's how I kind of write to see kind of how—where I put myself in a position where I, I have to be funny. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But that's how I write. It's like, you know, I try this idea. I'll get to where I think it's kind of funny, and either it is or it isn't. And depending on how much I'm committed to it, I'll keep going at it and keep pushing it or adding new things to it. So it's it's sort of a very engaged process with the audience. And they knew what was up. They knew that this wasn't finished stuff. They knew it was workshopping. So they were supportive, so it was good. And sometimes it got kind of, you know, heavy, like it got emotional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I bet. I bet. And and so ultimately you said you haven't heard from her family, but from friends. Yeah, and yeah, it's been yeah. generally Yeah, no, positive. no. I mean, yeah, because I mean it is a tribute and I you know, and I did love the person. Uh but you know, I've had experience as a comic who talks about their life is that, you know, when you talk about people in your life, they don't have a platform to respond. Uh, and I've certainly learned that lesson with with women I've been dating, you know, and, and I'm I, you know, and I am I, I weigh that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I honor that. I understand that. It makes sense to me. You know, this you know, there's other people involved in your life. But obviously, Lynn is in no position to respond. And and I believe that what I was doing was, you know, sort of a. Uh, I felt like the conversation had to be had, and I felt like that, you know, disarming and opening up a a sort of humorous conversation about something that is as, uh, as, uh, what's the word I want? Unavoidable as birth. You know, birth and death is, you know, know, that's going to happen. Yeah. Death is going to happen. And, you know, I just needed to have those conversations. I needed to lighten up the the most darkest parts of, uh, of losing somebody. Because I think it was uh, helpful to me yeah. and others. Yeah, no, I I, I thought it, I thought it was beautiful. Thanks. I thought it was a beautiful tribute, uh, and you know, Coda with that photo at the end, and and it was just another way to k- keep her legacy alive. Yeah. So when people see this special, it reminds them that of her. Maybe it's like, oh, I should go back and watch some of her movies. Sure. Or you know, it's it's sort of just nice to keep that legacy. Yeah. Yeah, she was great. So. Um, Beyond that, mm. um, the future of what's what's next in terms of this next special is this something that which one the whatever thing, I'm doing whatever now? you're working on now. I don't know. You know, I'm just thrilled that y- y- 
that things fell into place, uh, and I feel that it, they fell into place in in every way with this last special. You know, I've done many, you know, specials. You know, I've done, I think I did three for Netflix, one for Epix, uh, you know, this one for HBO. I'd done a half-hour thing for HBO back in the 90s, a couple Comedy Central half-hours, you know, five or six albums. I've done a lot of stuff. But I think in terms of the future, you know, I never know what's going to happen. And, and even with this one, the fact that we did it at HBO was just great. That, you know, Netflix... Excuse me. It's so easy to get lost on Netflix. And, you know, I think in, in some yeah. ways they've, they've really ruined comedy, um, you know, in terms of... Just it, because of the sheer volume of, of it or... Well, no, I, I think that, you know, when you get into a model that's strictly algorithm generated is what happens ultimately is you've got, you know, a handful of guys who can change the algorithm in a way that, you know, warrants their their uh, their payday. And that payday becomes so extreme and crazy. But I think those days are over that, mm -hmm. you know, there's there, you know, they are they're compelled to just generate you know, in order to get the handout, you know, in order to get the, the cash grab. So what happens is great comics do, you know, half-baked specials because of the payday. And a lot of younger comics now, you know, they don't get any money. So now it's like a, a bringer show at Netflix. It's like, yeah, we'll put it on if you pay for it. You know, so like, and there's no curation. It's all dictated by an algorithm. So, like, you know, I had a special on there, uh, End Times Fun, which I thought was a great special. Uh, you know, and like, literally two or three weeks after it goes up there, I'm like, I don't even know if I can find it. Is it still on here? Right. And and there's just that process of the experience of the Netflix menu. And, and I, I don't know, man. It, it Something shifted. You know, they could have done my special, but it just was fortuitous and beautiful that, you know, my whole life when I was a kid starting out in comedy you just all there was was the hbo special and that was like the thing yeah and oddly it still kind of is because when you think about hbo not not to, it's just without considering the global reach of netflix and the sort of like household name of it all and and that it's just become a brand that's you know burned into our head is that hbo still kind of means something and you know it's it's a curated house they have great shows on, and they get behind things. So, you know, when you go to HBO, and I, I don't, you know, I imagine even with the separation from their streaming service, the Max thing, HBO is going to exist, is that you're part of this thing. Yeah. You know, you're part of where Succession is, where Game of Thrones was, where the, the what is it, The Last of Us? Yeah. You know, I mean, so you go there, and there's these amazing shows. There's a handful of amazing shows, and you're a comedy special. It's part of it. And it just turned out that, it was a lifelong dream. They got behind it, the, the, and everything just kind of worked out. I did the music for it, which was brief, oh, but yeah. it's mine. I saw that. Yeah, you got the music credit on there. Yeah, yeah. and Fine Arts, you know, did a, Stephen did a great job directing, and you know, the guy who did the the set and the lighting um, design was all very collaborative. You know, I had ideas for that stuff that were, that manifested in what you saw there because that guy was a genius. And it just, everything kind of fell into place. And the performance, I thought, was solid. Um, and I dressed good, and my hair looked right. There's a lot of, it just, like, I get hung up on that stuff. I always make the wrong fashion choices on specials. And it just, everything looked pretty good, and, and it was solid. So I was very proud of the whole thing. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of, like, excited to be at HBO. Yeah. It was like the timing was good, you know, not to be involved with, with Netflix or other streaming services. HBO, like to me, in my mind, maybe I'm, you know, it's, it's just nostalgia, but it felt like a, an honor, you know. It was a good jacket, but is that the same jacket? No. no? That's kind of. The jacket was, that was sort of a leather shirt jacket at uh, John Varvatos. This is, yeah. This is a suede thing. Um, Still solid. Japan. Still Thanks. solid. Um, but yeah, you you bring up in the special kind of the state of comedy and, and the whole sort of grappling with cancel culture versus consequence culture yeah do, do you think we're sort of working past that now all i know man is like you know for me it's like the idea of like you know you can't say things or it's like it's it's a very hackneyed position 
uh, you know, a lot of people who whine about being canceled, no one could, you know, give a shit about. Uh, you know, it's an easy disposition. It's it's a it's a hack point of view. And I think what I say in the special is that, you know, they're just like, you know, we're all just trying to find our way of saying the same three things. You, mm-hmm. you know, they if you want to go up there and, you know, and hammer liberals or trans culture or LGBTQ, like it's just it, it's just hack that there are this there's a there's a type of comic mind out there. And there's a lot of them who think like it's their They have to go up and address trans people. It's like you don't. It's not, you know, you're not, you're just getting juice from it. So for me, in that special, I was like, you know, I'm going to take real emotional risks here. You know, whatever risk you think you're taking, you know, by, by uh, diminishing, you know, marginalized people or people who are already struggling is, is just, um, it's not real, that risk. You know, it's a, it's a device you've stolen, you know, to, to avoid you know, actually talking about who you are and how you feel because you don't have the courage to do that. So, so that was, for me, in light of what I said about that, but also in dealing with loss, I felt that I was taking the real risks that one should try to take as a, as a as, you know, I, I'm worried to use the word artist, but as a comic of, of the ilk that I respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the classic, like, punching down is easy. Sometimes, and but it's the, you know punching down has always been around, you know, and it, it it was more accepted at a different time, you know. But now it's become very specific, and and very you know loaded because you know it, it can cause real harm, you know. But there was a time where I think you know punching down was it, it, the idea that that comics always punched up is ridiculous. I mean, you, you know, I, people bu- bullying has always been part of a certain type of comedy right right it's always been around yeah but you know punching up is is more noble or just punching sideways or punching yourself uh it's just there there is i just feel like culturally and politically there there's a group of comics that you know are are kind of under this umbrella of free thinking and and uh and anti-woke and it's like i don't understand it you know how how you know why wouldn't you want to be woke Right. That there, there is some part of this anti-woke thing that, you know, anti-woke, there used to be, you know, tolerance on some level is necessary for dem- democracy to work. You know, if, if m- most people are willing to accept or embrace something out of respect or humanity, then the people that aren't eventually just, you know, you know suck it up and learn to live with it. But now there is no tolerance and, you know, wokeness is, is somehow – become a bad thing in the mind of people. And I see that as just, they're like apparatchiks. They're, they're, whether they know it or not, a lot of these comics are just being used by right-wing ideology to, to justify this division and also this sort of sense of uh, homogenous culture, which is you know, fundamentally uh, white, Christian, and uh, intolerant. How did so many Saturday Night Live alums from the '80s and '90s become so right wing? I don't know. It's, I only I don't. It, what's it, it's like just two that I know of. Yeah, and you know they're not. You know, it's the same with anybody. Something gets activated. You start to realize that you know with actors or artists or people that you respect, you know you have a sense of them. Uh, you've enjoyed their work, and you assume because we're in the same racket, the arts that they they have some sort of progressive, you know, view of the world. And it's just not true. They're just people. And, you know, at some point people get older and, you know, something snaps in their head. A lot of people uh, who are, are in the arts may not be savvy at all politically and, and something turns them. Uh, and, and, you know, where are they going to put that anger? What did they grow up with? What was their dad like? What do they really feel? So, I mean, you just can't depend on people in the arts to sort of honor your particular point of view because you think that they he's a funny guy he should be all right well i mean politically the the good thing about the old days is we you know people kept it to themselves and just took it to the voting booth now everybody's a, a pundit one day one way or the other but on the other side of that and i've just started talking about it like there is art going on on television and specifically i've noticed in limited series that you know I believe, though I've, I've argued with my producer about this, that maybe it's always been around, but there is, you know, a tremendous uh, amount of, I don't know if it'll keep being 
there, the money made available for for people who do great work to to do streaming series. But it feels like there is some amazingly aggressive political satire and and just all embracing uh, progressive storytelling going on in relation to you know whatever the hell is going on in reality. Like like you know like I talked to Barry Jenkins about Underground Railroad and that thing is mind blowing. And yeah. no one saw it. And and it is a masterpiece in terms of sort of metaphorically and, and literally documenting the black experience to the point where, you know, I watched it. And, and some of it is fairly abstract. But it engaged a, ty- a type of empathy in me in, in relation to the nature of its, its subject matter that, that I had never experienced. And I feel like that is happening in relation to a fairly active movement in this country towards white nationalism and Christian nationalism, fascism. Mm-hmm. And the same, I just watched this, uh, this horror show, you know, with Vice, you know, the, the Dead Ringers, which is like, it, it's in succession too, you know, aggressive social satire. Yeah, yeah. And, and this Dead Ringers thing in terms of, uh, you know, feminine power, it was like I was just blown out. And I don't know whether I'm just getting old and sappy, but I'm just seeing all this great work being done in, in the realm of the entertainment that really packs a, you know, a punch against, really punches up. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. As, as we record this today, the big news of the day is Tucker Carlson being uh, let go by Fox News. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good. I, I tweeted today, I said uh, real-life succession was better than fictional succession today. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. But, you know, he might run for president. So, you know, the, the shitstorm never stops. But you might as well enjoy your breakfast. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, I think that's probably a good way to end things now, Mark. Uh, okay, the shit The shitstorm continues. But enjoy um, your breakfast. But enjoy your breakfast, <laughs> yeah, says Mark Marin. Uh, well, congrats on the special and uh, everything else uh, coming up. Uh, good luck with the. Oh, you're uh, talking about a new special. We'll see. You know, I'll just I'm just going to do well, what I always do and, and keep the working. previous and the previous. Congrats on the previous. Oh, well, special. thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. We'll see another special soon. But then also all these film projects that uh, you're uh, looking toward and, and working on. Um, we'll we'll keep an eye on that as well. Thanks, so, man. Thanks, man. Great talking to you. Good to you. That's Mark Marin. You can catch his most recent special, Mark Marin, from Bleak to Dark, on Max. And also see his guest spot on FX's Reservation Dogs via Hulu. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest awards predictions and key races as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Emily Longretta, and Clayton Davis, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.